I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the latest in Israel with its politics, government dissolving, we have with us Dr. John Alterman, who is the director of our Middle East program. John is the Brzezinski chair in geostrategy, and he's a senior vice president at CSIS. Welcome back to the podcast, my friend. It's good to be with you again, Andrew. Thank you. So, John, earlier this week, Israel's governing coalition moved to dissolve parliament. And this was a historic coalition. It was made up of liberals, conservatives, religious conservatives, both Arab conservatives and Jewish conservatives and Tel Aviv liberals. What what happened here? It was never much more than an anti-Netanyahu coalition. As you said, it was probably the most incoherent coalition Israel has ever had. It had secularists, it probably excluded the religious parties for the first time in quite some time. It had the right and the left, as you said, for the first time in Israel's history, an Arab party was part of the coalition. And it was all cobbled together because in his time as Israel's longest serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu has accrued a lot of enemies and a lot of people who think he's a threat to democracy in Israel. All these groups came together to try to get rid of Netanyahu. And while they were able to cobble together a narrow coalition, they actually couldn't govern the country. The, the coalition began to fray based on its own internal inconsistencies and incoherence. And they're going to elections. What people predict for these elections, which will likely be held in October, is that there's no obvious coalition that can emerge from them. Netanyahu will probably have the largest number of seats, but will probably be unable to put together a majority in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. The opposition will have a smaller number of seats, but it's not clear that it will be able to put together a ruling coalition. And it's this instability that keeps Israelis going to the poll time and time again. And the problem is really not which side is up and which is down. The problem is Israelis have become so polarized that they can't agree on a coalition. And we can talk about some of the reasons, there are structural reasons for that. Some of the structural reasons are avoidable and some probably aren't. Yeah, so let's talk about the polarization. When we think about polarization, we usually think about our own polarization here in America. Sometimes we think about it in Europe. We just saw you know, a pretty interesting election in France. But what is Israel's polarization all about? Well, Israel's polarized on, on several levels. As I said, there's a, there's a left-wing, right-wing polarization. There's a religious conservative polarization, which doesn't line up with the left-wing, white-wing. There's a Jewish-Arab polarization. There's a pro-BB, anti-BB polarization, with reference to Benjamin Netanyahu, whose nickname is BB. All these things, you could argue that this creates opportunities to have adaptive coalitions where people can come together and you can rally people around and you can bring some from here and some from there, and it would create more durable coalitions. One of the real challenges that Israel has is that it's become 
a sort of taboo in Israel to include Arab parties in the ruling coalition. And Arabs represent 20% of the Israeli population. What that requires is the Jewish parties need a super majority of the Jewish population to create a durable coalition, and they've been unable to do it. This coalition is the first one to include an Arab party. It's actually an Islamist party in the coalition. Netanyahu was courting this party. And then when it was included in anti-Netanyahu coalition, he attacked the coalition for being traitors to the Zionist cause and, and how you're letting the, the terrorists into the government. It remains an emotional issue for a lot of Jewish Israelis. It remains an emotional issue for a lot of Arab Israelis. If this government, which I'm a citizen of, doesn't want to have Arab representation, then what does citizenship mean? And so Israel, in some ways, is still trying to struggle with the contradictions of its creation. The ultra-Orthodox, many of whom are hostile to the existence of a state of Israel before the Messiah comes, were initially a tiny fragment of the population. Ben-Gurion thought the ultra-Orthodox population in Israel would die out. It's an increasingly important part of the population. It's involved in welfare payments and, and social security, and they control a lot of things in terms of marriage and other civil aspects of life as part of their deal to support the state. But I think between an Arab population that doesn't totally fit into the Zionist mold, a Jewish population which in some cases is actually anti-Zionist and certainly doesn't fit into the mold. You have a sense that Tel Aviv society is totally different from Jerusalem society, is totally different from the West Bank. You have settlers, some of whom think need to have all the rights of Israeli citizens. Some Israelis think the settlers are undermining the state. You end up having, for a relatively small population, tremendous divisions, which makes it hard to put together a ruling ruling coalition. Yeah, I mean, Tel Aviv is like a separate country than the rest of the country. It is. Tel Aviv and its suburbs are very secular, very high tech. There's a, a, a vibrant economy. In an integrated Arab and Jew. Yeah, although, you know. To some the, extent. To, to some, some extent, extent. For a small place, there is tremendous ethnic diversity, ideological diversity, religious diversity. So, John, although there's all this polarization and the government has fallen, the government of Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, the coalition, actually accomplished some things. There was a historic free trade agreement with the UAE, for instance. And the economy is, is pretty good, although unemployment's low, housing prices are high, but some pretty good things happened during this last year, um, why couldn't the coalition survive? You know, one person dropped out of the coalition because of a dispute of whether security guards at hospitals should search visitors for leavened products during Passover. I mean, the, the, yeah. the, the, that becomes the kind of thing that breaks a government, I think, is a sign of just 
how many small issues become big issues in a polarized environment in Israel. Netanyahu clearly has wanted to disrupt this coalition. Netanyahu would like to be back in power. He would like to, to be back in power so as to free himself from these corruption proceedings and the trial, which is proceeding in Israeli courts. There's a way in which Netanyahu has a lot of the same passionate emotional support in Israel that Donald Trump has in the United States. There are a lot of people in Israel who see Benjamin Netanyahu as a savior of the country from a whole set of enemies within and without. There are also Israelis who believe that Benjamin Netanyahu is a profound threat to the country. And to me, it is remarkable how much Israeli politics have continued to revolve around Netanyahu, that he is able to frustrate other coalitions. He is able to build his own coalition. And he remains the principal topic of conversation in Israeli politics. And the sort of workaday get things done the process that, that, that Bennett and, and Lapid have tried to lead somehow doesn't, doesn't energize Israelis in the same way. I think that, that in many ways, Lapid and Bennett are both pretty skillful politicians. They're willing to compromise on most things. They find creative ways to bring people along. They are flexible. They're playing a long game. In some ways, the same way that, that Ronald Reagan said, we'll get what we get this time, and then the next time around, we'll get more. I mean, this is sort of what a conventional politician does. Netanyahu rules by, by calling people out and saying, this person's a traitor, and this is a threat, and we have to act. And it's a different mood. It's a different approach. And a lot of young Israelis, not only is it all they've ever known, but it's also what they're comfortable with. And I think what is underappreciated about Netanyahu is I think he's had a really good sense for where the center in Israel is. The center in Israel has been moving rightward. He's helped move it, but he's not off-center. He's not a right-wing politician. In Israeli terms, he's a centrist politician. He has a very good sense for where that center is, and he stays in the center. So it's interesting about Netanyahu, John. You know, Netanyahu, as you said, a lot of people feel safe with him, feel comfortable with him, feel like he, you know, can verbally call out the threat and, and make it known. Yet over the last year, Lapid really did a lot to counter the threat, namely Iran. So is it a matter of Lapid not getting credit for it or taking credit for it? Or is it just that Bibi is much more of a skillful politician? Well, Bibi's a great communicator. Bennett argued that he was the, the point person on Iran, and he argues that he's going to continue to be the point person on Iran through this transition period, although Lapid will be the, the prime minister during the transition period. But Bennett is more of a, a retail politician. And there's a way in which Netanyahu is a brilliant wholesale politician. He understands how to speak to millions of people. He understands how to speak to supporters of Israel in the United States. I mean, I think to me, 
one of the remarkable things is Bennett's English is superb. He spent a lot of time in the United States. His parents are American. He has not been a dominant presence here in the United States, anywhere near the way Netanyahu was. Not not at all. I mean, like, I, I think most Americans could recognize Netanyahu's voice if they heard it. I don't know anybody who can re- well, that recognize. Well, that says something about the people you hang out with, Andrew, but that's... <laughs> Maybe so. Uh, but, you know, I, I think nobody knows what Lapid sounds like. To me, one of the questions Israelis have to answer is, are you ready to engage with a different generation, a post-Netanyahu generation of Israeli politicians? Or are you still in the age of Netanyahu? Netanyahu fervently wants to still be in the age of Netanyahu. There are a lot of people who used to work with Netanyahu who are desperate to be past the age of Netanyahu. And how that plays out is going to be up to Israelis. But as I say, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's a consensus. It feels like there's going to be a murky outcome. And then it's going to depend on the backroom conversations, the, the real political activities, which Netanyahu has previously proven to be a master of, but which Yair Lapid showed a lot more skill doing a year ago than anybody thought anybody could. I mean, it it seemed to most people like Netanyahu was once again going to pull a rabbit out of the hat. Then he didn't. Lapid's the one who pulled the rabbit out of the hat. Right. And Lapid is a good communicator, a former television journalist. And his dad was a politician. Dad was a politician. And Lapid has a lot of people in the United States that do identify with him and like him. If Lapid had been prime minister and not Bennett, do you think that the government would have fallen just the same? Well, the way Lapid got the right-wing parties on board with his coalition was he let Bennett be the prime minister first. There's supposed to be a rotation. Right. I thought that was an interesting show of his political skill that he was able to to get Bennett to trust him enough to create this coalition which which crossed all the ideological spectrum in Israel. I'm not sure if Lapid would be able to get enough seats in the Knesset that he wouldn't have to make a similar concession to bring right-wing parties on board. But he might. I think that the current polling suggests that an anti-Netanyahu coalition will fall significantly short of being able to put a government together. And again, one of the big challenges here is the Arab vote. And if Arabs come out and vote in force for Arab parties, will they be an essential part of a future Israeli coalition? And what will that mean for Israeli politics? Will Israeli Jews continue to have discomfort about having Israeli Arabs as a, an intimate part of Israeli coalition funding. I don't, I don't know where that plays out, but, but it does seem to me that one of the ways it could play out is it could exacerbate Israeli polarization about the Arab role in Israeli society. In some ways, it's, it's the way some people in the United States feel that the Netanyahu presidency arouse all kinds of feelings of, of racism and resentment in the United States. I mean, you can have, as I like to, to say it, you had the, the sort of the Hamilton moment 
where people said we're all post-racial and isn't Hamilton wonderful and, and look at where we are. But then you can look at the Trump presidency and say, these are the people who voted for Trump are largely people who rejected the Hamilton message about being a post-racial country, about embracing all the, the different ethnic and, and racial groups in the country. And the country was built by white people and white people should be dominant. Israel has a really frank conversation. This country was built by Jews for Jews and will let other people live here. But that's because we let them. They don't have the same role. The national anthem talks about a Jewish state. The law talks about a Jewish state. So what's the role for non-Jews? Israel is still a little conflicted on this issue. And, and I could certainly see a course of action where Arabs would be an intimate part of a coalition, but it would actually create a serious backlash that Israelis would have to work through about what it means to, to have a government that people would argue has minority support from the Jewish community. Who's most likely to be able to bring all this together in terms of bringing the Arab coalition in, the Jewish religious coalition? Is it Lapid or is it, you know, is it Bibi? Is it somebody else? Clearly, something has to happen or they're just going to keep having election after election after election and there's not going to be a governing body in Israel. No, I mean, and that could be the outcome. I think this is the, the fifth election in three years. Yeah. Can you imagine if we had five elections in three years in the United States? God forbid. At the top level? God forbid. <laughs> it's unclear who would come out on top. Benny Gantz had seemed to be a potential political leader when it came time to actually being a politician. He didn't come across as skillful, and Netanyahu ran circles around him. Has he gotten more experience, and will he emerge as a possible compromise candidate. That's possible. There are other retired generals who are getting involved in politics. Will they be any more successful than other generals in politics? Unclear. Will Yair Lapid be able to put forward a vision of the country that gets people excited in a different kind of way? He's got my parents excited. Uh, okay. <laughs> I constantly am hearing quelling about Yair Lapid and Mickey Levy and, you know, so he's got some people excited. I look, I think Yair Lapid, I think, is a very interesting thinker and an interesting politician. But he's also to the left of where most Israelis are. He's that Tel Aviv liberal that we... And secularist. Well, I mean, liberal and secularist are not necessarily the same thing. Right. One of the things that he's been running on is saying we're not going to let the religious parties hold everybody hostage. Right. Well, that means the religious parties turn out in force against you. Right. And the, there's one of the things people don't, a lot of people don't know about Israel is that the, the group in Israel that can bring 200,000 people out into the streets in protest is the religious conservatives, the Jewish religious conservatives. And there are a lot of different religious groups. I mean, they're the national religious folks, right? I mean, they're the sort of settler religious folks, right. the ultra-Orthodox folks. You have among the ultra-Orthodox, you have Sephardi parties, right, and Ashkenazi parties. So it's a mosaic. Right. You could have even said 
Israel was built by Ashkenazi Jews originally. Yeah, and and there's hostility both from the Sephardic community and also hostility from Russian immigrants who feel that the Ashkenazim who had been in Israel for a long time didn't respect them. And don't even think that they're necessarily Jewish. Although, you know, and a lot of the, the Russian immigrants have moved to the right in Israeli politics. So it's what is interesting to me is, you know, we often think about Israel as a melting pot, but in many ways, it's much more of a salad bowl, even more than the United States. For all that we talk about the United States being a salad bowl, I think the different components of the Israeli polity have come together much less than we would have expected after 75 years. And there's real division and real animosity. And as I said, for a relatively small country, the diversity in Israel is profound. And I think there's also, there's a part of Israel that's really tolerant. There are large parts of Israel that are very intolerant. And how do you put that together into a government that has real decisions to make about gas in the Mediterranean, about whether transportation is going to be open on the Sabbath, about issues like, does the government have a role deciding if hospital security guards search people for leaven products during Passover? I mean, it feels like there's so much for them to work through, and they start from different premises, made more difficult by the fact that the Israel doesn't have a constitution, it has a basic law. So there's a way in which there's less of a common understanding of what the state is supposed to be. I mean, does the state have to be the state of the Jewish people? And what does it mean if it's the state of the Jewish people? What's the role of Jewish law and who gets to interpret it in terms of how the state works? And Israelis are still debating this in a profound way. It makes our originalism discussions in the United States seem sort of quaint. It sure does. I mean, it, it, you know, to add to all the problems that Israel faces externally, that the internal problems and the internal divisions are this complex, it makes it really hard to govern, really hard to get things done. Well, and, and the, the fascinating thing is if we were having this conversation 20 years ago, if podcasts existed 20 years ago, if Zoom existed <laughs> 20 years ago, we would be talking all about Arab-Israeli issues. Sure. Right? And the Arab-Israeli issues for most Israelis have essentially disappeared. Right? I mean, the issues of a two-state solution, the whole Oslo process. I mean, for most Israelis, they see out of sight, out of mind. That's not really my problem. The Palestinians can't really threaten us. The wall has been effective. And in the absence of that focus, I think Israelis generally seem to be conflicted about most things. And the one thing they come together on is the Iranian threat. So the Iranian threat becomes the the sort of the unifying external factor that Israelis can all organize around. When it comes to the Palestinians, in my experience, a lot of Israelis don't want to talk about it because there are so many differences about what to do. And so many different destinations, and and should we even talk about a two-state solution anymore? What would that look like? How do you trust them? I mean, all those things. So there's a sort of out of sight, out of mind on the Palestinian-Israeli issues. The Arab world 
seems to be normalizing at a pretty rapid rate. And then the question is, what do you do about Iran? And I think there's actually a fair amount of consensus on Israel that Iran is the principal external threat. What Israel does, how you get the United States to do the right things, that's a problem. But it leaves Israelis to fight with each other about how they run the country. It's a fascinating set of circumstances. One thing we haven't talked about yet is, is President Biden's going to the Middle East. And, you know, with what's going on in Israel, how Biden's been long been a staunch supporter of Israel. He's long been a friend of prime ministers. He's gotten along with them. He's been to Israel a bunch of times. What do you think Biden's trip is going to consist of and how does Israeli politics play into it? I don't think Israeli politics will play into it very much. I think you're going to see Israeli politicians uh, generally try to align themselves with Biden. I don't think you're going to see Israeli politicians trying to embarrass Biden, which is a feature that that sometimes uh, came to the fore when, when American presidents visited and Netanyahu as prime minister. They're certainly going to talk about Iran. They're going to talk about Israel's normalization in the region. They're going to talk about deepening the partnership, all kinds of threats. They'll talk about the way Israel can play a more constructive role in, in regional security, particularly with missile defense. I think it's it's going to be a less minefield-filled trip than it often is for American presidents to go, because I think that that Bennett and Lapid both want this to be pretty smooth. And I think they'll they'll both be trying to associate themselves with Biden instead of cornering Biden. What Netanyahu does as an opposition politician who will be in campaign mode is less clear to me. But I think this is going to be the the relatively easier part of the trip. And the choreography for a Saudi leg is going to be much more difficult. Yeah, well, let's talk about the Saudis for a second. So Israel has this historic free trade agreement with the UAE. It's normalized relations throughout the Gulf, still working on its relationship with Saudi Arabia. Where does that stand? Under the table, lots of exchanges, commercial deals, some sort of security cooperation I've heard, certainly understandings and a lot of back and forth. In plain sight, the feeling is we're not there yet. There has to be some deal on justice for the Palestinians. You don't have an Israeli government that can give things to the Saudis in return for normalization. I mean, the Saudis would see normalization is a big gift to the Israelis. What are we going to get for it? And with the Israeli government in disarray, they're not in a position to give anything. King Salman also sees justice for the Palestinians not as a diplomatic issue, not as a political issue. I think he sees it as a moral issue. And as long as he's king, I think he's going to be very resistant to, to crossing that line. But there'll be a lot of accommodations along the way, sort of technical things. People are talking about overflight. Israeli planes flying over Saudi Arabia. People are talking about security in the Gulf of Elat, Gulf of Aqaba, which would allow Saudi Arabia to reassert control over two islands in the Gulf that, that Egypt had controlled, Tehran and Senefir. 
so I think you'll see sort of small things that that show the direction, but in terms of something dramatic, I don't think we're close to something dramatic that would require a different kind of Israeli government. Isn't the main thing that Saudi Arabia wants from Israel is security against Iran? No, I think they, they actually do think about the Palestinians and they think about their leadership of the Muslim world, not the same way they did, but I still think it's important. And I think they feel there's a genuine issue with where the public would be. The Emiratis demonstrated that the public isn't necessarily where everybody thought it would be, but the Saudi government isn't in the same position as the Emirati government, partly has a much larger population, but it also has a, a much larger population of religious conservatives who have been committed to the Palestinian cause for a much longer time. So I think that the Saudis want a lot of things and, and probably they feel they can get most of what they want by doing it privately. The Israelis, I would imagine, are going to say, well, to get these things, you have to do some public things. But I think this this process is going to take several more years, and it's certainly not going to move in a July visit. John, this has been really interesting, and I will absolutely want to have you back in October to talk about what happens with the next Israeli election. It may be November before we know what's happened with the next Israeli election, right? It, <laughs> right. it can take a while to form a government. Sometimes it takes a while in the United States to form a government. Yes. <laughs> John, thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 